The reading this morning comes from John 19, starting at verse 16, and can be found on page 1086 on the Bibles in front of you. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, but with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to the bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Car park, car park, car park. Hey, listen, um, thank you.
do want to say for your um, flexibility and adaptability uh, with the whole car park situation, uh, for some reason I think the school changed the locks so we couldn't get in. Uh, if it was bad for you this morning, imagine what it was like for the poor uh, teenage boy who was on car park duty who at 7 o'clock tried for 20 minutes in the pouring down rain to get the door open. So uh, I do want to thank you for um, just going with it. Uh, also, um, just before we, we start, uh, you might be wondering about the whole coronavirus, how it might be affecting us here. Uh, I just want to let you know that we are keeping a very close ear to the ground as far as kind of government directives and our diocesan recommendations go. And uh, we'll basically just um, follow their lead and we'll also communicate uh, to you what our plans are well in advance so it doesn't take you by surprise. So we're monitoring the situation. I don't think we're at a stage where we need to stop gathering or stop sharing meals, that sort of thing, but we'll let you know in advance. Now, having distracted you from what really are um, some of the most important words in the whole Bible, let's pray and then we'll get underway. And if you could keep your Bibles open at John 19, that would be helpful. Uh, Heavenly Father God, amidst uh, the various distractions that are on our minds and around us today, help us to see Jesus clearly. Amen. The late 1950s, the streets of New York, very dangerous place to be, I mean in many decades, but particularly in the late 1950s, they were filled with drugs, criminality, violence, gangs, with the Hispanic Mau Mau gang being amongst the worst of the gangs. At that time, west of New York City, in the Pennsylvania hills, there was a young pastor, a minister called David Wilkinson, and he was reading a newspaper article about seven teenage gang members on trial for murder in New York City. And as he stared at the sketch of these seven young men in the newspaper, he had a deep conviction that God wanted him to move to the city to work with these young men. And so he did that. He moved to New York City. And he even approached the leader of the Mau Maus, a certain man called Nicky Cruz, and he told him that God loved him and would never stop loving him. And Cruz slapped him in the face and threatened to kill him. And you can read about how the rest of that story unfolds in a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Very famous book. Lots of you would have read it. I think 50 million copies have been sold. But what you may not know is that that young minister, David Wilkerson, he stayed in New York City. And he founded a Christian addiction recovery program called Teen Challenge. And then in 1987, he eventually founded a church in Times Square, under all the bright lights and big screens there. But it was uh, about a decade later in 1996, he, he looked at a contemporary American Christianity all around him with its um, packaged programming and its slick professionalism and its high-tech production values, and he lamented in one of his most famous messages, they have done away with the cross. Now, I guess if you live and work under the blinding glare of Times Square, you might ask yourself the question, what have we got left? What have we got in essence if the lights go out, if they turn the power off? Well, you really have the cross of Christ. But Wilkerson lamented, American churches have done away with the cross. I wonder what he would say if he was still alive in 2020. I wonder if Jesus in 2020 would lament, they have done away with my cross. At the core of what we as Christians have to offer the world is the cross of Christ. It's the death of Jesus. God forbid that we do away with it. 
And today we're going to focus on the historical events of the cross, the death of Jesus, the very fact of it from John 19, before we spend four weeks in the lead up to Easter, thinking together about its significance. Since returning to the story of uh, Jesus' story this term, we've seen him arrested and tried by the Jewish religious figures. Last week we saw him being tried by Pilate, the Roman governor, before being handed over to be crucified. And we're going to consider those details today. Truth be told, a month of Sundays could not cover the significance of the death of Jesus. So today we just want to focus on the account of his death. And I want to keep it simple and just look at three things. Scripture fulfilled eyewitness testimony, and good news for all. If you like to think of it as past, present, future, the death of Jesus was predicted in the past, that scripture fulfilled. It was witnessed in that present moment by eyewitness testimony, and it will be proclaimed throughout the future into eternity because it is good news for all. But firstly today, let's consider scripture fulfilled. The death of Jesus is scripture fulfilled, predicted in the past, but has come to fulfilment on that fateful day. Now, perhaps it's worthwhile just uh, setting the scene uh, for a short period of time. And that's what John's Gospel does for us in verses 16 to 18. I really do hope you've got it open in front of you. Pilate, the Roman governor, he tries Jesus. uh, And as Phil mentioned, he was unsuccessful in gaining support for Jesus' release. Though he knew Jesus was innocent, And in verse 16, you see there, he hands him over over to the Roman execution squad. Typically, uh, and let me say, this day looked very typical. That would have involved four soldiers, each an expert executioner who took charge of Jesus, which means they would ensure that he really died. Crucifixion, a practice that was invented by the Persians, I didn't know that, but it was really fine-tuned and finessed by the Romans Uh, And it was so awful that no Roman citizen was permitted to undergo it. Those crucified were often brutally beaten first and then slowly suffocated over many hours, perhaps even days, uh, as they desperately tried to lift their chests high enough to get air into their lungs by pushing off their feet that were nailed uh, in place to the cross. Now that sounds kind of extraordinary, but actually crucifixion was a common enough event that they might have even have had the uprights of the cross permanently jammed into the hard Judean hillside there at Golgotha, at the place of the skull. And Jesus, verse 17, probably carried just that horizontal crossbar up there. I, I wonder if you found it noteworthy that John didn't go into any detail about the physical torture of crucifixion. Have a look at verse 18. Very minimally, he just says, And there they crucified him with two others. And so instead of focusing on the physical torment of the cross, one of the things John focuses on is that Jesus' death on the cross was scripture fulfilled. It was predicted in the past. It was now fulfilled at his death. Now, I think fulfillment is something that we look for in our lives. Uh, And I don't just mean uh, in the general sense of being able to say, you know, I have a really fulfilling life. I mean, we like it when things fulfill their meaning and their purpose when the the vision of something that we have in our heads, in our dreams, becomes a reality. When you, poor, suffering, northern beaches homeowners, get renovations done. 
right? I understand this. In fact, this is, this is the only way you know you are a true Northern Beaches local. You haven't just bought in the area, you are staying and renovating, right? You have a vision for what your place will be like, the additional lifestyle improvements those changes will make, the sheer better life that you will have. And if those dreams come to fulfillment, it's a wonderful thing, I'm told. <laughs> but let's, let's just think more broadly. Even if you go on holidays, right? You, you book your holiday and you imagine what it'll be like, you know, what you'll get to see, the things you might get to do. I mean, they say that the anticipation is actually the best part of it. And the question, of course, is whether the experience is a fulfillment of that anticipation. Okay, so we understand fulfillment. There's expectation and anticipation, and there's also fulfillment. Now, John draws our attention to expectation and anticipation in the Old Testament that is being fulfilled here in Jesus' death. Well, ask the question, where do we see that? Well, actually in odd places, I think. We see it first in the Roman executioner's division of Jesus' clothing in verse 23 and 24. Most likely, Jesus would have had uh, an outer robe, a head covering, a belt, and some sandals. Okay, so that's basically one piece for each of the four executioners. But what to do with that fifth seamless woven undergarment it says they decided perhaps just off the cuff to gamble for it rather than tear it into four pieces evenly and so unwittingly they fulfill psalm 22 the the most famous crucifixion psalm in the old testament which says they divided my garments among them i mean this was written a thousand years earlier and cast lots for my clothing so you see the fulfillment there You see this fulfillment again in verse 28 as Jesus nears his human end. Uh, Read verse 28. Knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Two weeks ago in chapter 18 verse 4 when we started out with Jesus, this, this part of the story, it says Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen, went out. By this stage, Jesus, knowing that all was complete, Okay, it's brought to a completion. He asked for a drink. How about that? The one who once offered living water now concedes his own thirst. And he has offered uh, probably some of the guard's own stash of cheap wine vinegar to drink. It was kind of like the Gatorade of the day. So you see that prediction and fulfillment again. A further time, unbeknown to the Roman soldiers, their, their offhand actions fulfill ancient predictions like Psalm 69 written a thousand years earlier which said I am worn out calling for help my throat is parched and I look for sympathy but there was none for comforters but I found none they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst well you see it this sort of thing a third time after Jesus breathes his last after he gives up his spirit, after he cries out, it is finished, which is what Bruce is going to speak about on Good Friday, and then dies. Jewish religious officials, (laughs) boy, you can tell they were religious people from the way they put to death an innocent man, can't you? I say sarcastically. Actually, you can tell they're religious because amidst all this, they're extremely concerned about the bodies of those crucified being left up there on the crosses. 
in the case that that might interfere with the Sabbath that was about to start, especially because that Sabbath coincided with the celebration of the Passover feast. And so they needed the convicts to die quickly. They needed them to be taken down and it all to be cleaned up before sundown. How to speed up their deaths. How to expedite the end. Uh, I know. We'll break their legs. Break their legs. That way they won't be able to push up off their feet. So they won't be able to get air into their lungs. So they'll die more quickly. And so the Jews ask the soldiers to break the prisoner's legs. And they go to the first guy. Bang, and they do that. And they go into the second guy. And bang, they do it again to him. And they come to Jesus in the middle. And they realize, verse 33, he's already dead. And I think it's safe to say that expert executioners would know when someone is dead. So they don't bother breaking his legs. Instead, one of them, um, again, perhaps off the cuff, violently thrusts a spear into Jesus' side from which a sudden flow of blood and water gushes. His vital organs are ruptured. It really does seem to me like he's dead now. But for the third time, John sees the unplanned, random actions of rough Roman soldiers as fulfilling predictions that were written 500, maybe 1,000, maybe even 1,300 years earlier. Have a look at verse 36. Actually, in your Bibles. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. You see, friends, in the death of Jesus, we see past predictions fulfilled. And it was no mere accident. Secondly, today, what we see is that the death of Jesus is eyewitness testimony. If past predictions were fulfilled in his death, in the present, the fact of his death is witnessed by numbers of people who were there, rather than being workshopped by later novelists. Okay, it was witnessed, not workshopped. One Sunday night uh, when we lived in London, just about a million years ago, <laughs> coming home from church, and as we went through our front door, we saw a suspicious-looking chap walking through the alley between our place and our 82-year-old next-door neighbor's place. Now, we didn't think much of it because uh, people used to come and go all the time. But about a quarter hour later, a police car pulled up next door and we could hear a little bit of commotion. So I went outside and I asked one of the officers what was going on. And he told me that someone had broken into my neighbour's place and hit her over the head with a liquor bottle. I said, I reckon I know who did that. And they said to me, do you reckon you'd be able to spot him if you saw him? So what do you reckon I said? I said, I reckon I would. So I got in the squad car and we took a little trip around the block for only about 10 or 15 minutes, during which time someone was mugged at knife point in the park across the road that we used to walk in most afternoons, during which time another local resident called in a further break and enter. Over the radio, you could hear the caller describing the thieves flashing their torches inside the house, but there were no spare squad cars left to attend during which time another call came through on the radio. A body had been dumped from a car onto the roundabout at the top of the street. So I tried to be cool, and I asked the officer if it was a busier-than-normal night. He very casually replied to me, it was, a, well, it was just a regular Sunday evening for them. We never did spot the invader, 
But as we went to bed, we heard another squad car pull up outside our house. Someone had been shot in the next suburb, which was actually just around the next corner. And I thought to myself, it's funny, you know, the real estate agent never mentioned this when we rented the place. Obviously, it wasn't in a flash neighbourhood, but we had lived there for three years with basically no indication that it was a crime hotspot other than this single wide-eyed eyewitness experience. Let me say it was very persuasive. There is something about eyewitness accounts that we find persuasive, isn't there? And this account in John's Gospel is persuasive for that precise reason. It comes from John's own wide-eyed eyewitness testimony. Let's read verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony. He's talking about himself. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. Actually, Jesus' death as an historical fact is clear throughout the passage, even if verse 35 weren't there. We see it in the details of the description, slightly quirky things that uh, John has highlighted. We read the mention of the women who were there who saw everything that had gone on. You actually see it further in the burial narrative in the next few verses, which we didn't get a chance to read earlier, but our growth groups this week will have a chance to consider the details of Jesus' burial more closely. Suffice to say for now, the fact that you have the people and the preparations involved in Jesus' burial is pretty good evidence that Jesus actually died as a matter of historical record and truthfulness. So looking at things from the past, Jesus' death fulfilled past predictions of Scripture But looking at things as they happened that day, in that present moment, Jesus' death is verified by eyewitness testimony. And I'm just suggesting that is persuasive. Now lastly, or thirdly for today, the death of Jesus is a message that would be proclaimed from that day forward to all future generations. In other words, his death is not just a fulfillment of the past. It's not just a verifiable historical fact. It's got ongoing relevance from that day forward for all people. Now, I did not know this, but you can get a job as a futurist. Have you heard about this? This absolute caper that some people have got running. You can be a futurist, which is a person who uh, advises organisations on matters such as global trends, emerging market opportunities, risk management, and the average earnings per annum of a futurist is $83,000, which is American money, so it really counts. Uh, That's good money, isn't it, for basically sharing your vibe on what you think might happen. But here's the thing about being a futurist. It's getting harder and harder to predict the future, isn't it? Because things are changing more quickly than ever. But for all the futurists that are out there today, I think I can see one or two. I want to help you. Because the message that Jesus is the king, perhaps despite appearances, will always be a message to be shared with the world. It's a message for all kinds of people, in all kinds of circles, and in fact across all generations. And you see that in the sign that is placed above Jesus' head on the cross uh, in verse 19. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. I think Pilate knew that by writing that, he would make the Jewish religious officials pretty cranky. 
And by not changing it at their insistence, I think he was deliberately having a go at them because they wouldn't take his earlier hints to release Jesus. But whatever you make of the interplay of the Jewish officials and this irked Roman governor, the sign says it all, and it says it to all. Let's read verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. What a fascinating detail, written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The Aramaic is the top line, Greek is the middle line, Latin is the bottom line on that picture there. Written in Greek, the language associated with culture and philosophy, higher thinking and education. Written in Latin, the language of government, law, administration. It was the language of the empire. Written in Aramaic, a sort of street Hebrew, the language of the street, the language of the people. Can you see what this sign communicates to all people? The the sophisticated and the street person, the philosopher and the farmer and the government worker, to those close to the top, to those at ground level, to Greeks, Romans, to Jews, to everyone at every station, in every place, and for that matter, in every era, Jesus is king. Friend, it includes you this morning. Have you heard that message that Jesus is king? That Jesus might be enthroned as king, effectively lifted up in death on a cross. It's not a message contained to that day, to the many Jews on that day who saw the sign. It remains a message for the whole world and for all the people therein, from whatever walk of life they come from and in whatever age they happen to live in. There is a future dimension to the death of Jesus. It remains an ongoing message to be shared with all people and across all time. And so we've seen today that Jesus' death is a fulfilment of past scriptures, captivated, captured, I should say, as it happened, uh, a present moment in real time by eyewitness and remains a message for ongoing or future distribution. Well, so what? Can I give you two quick applications for us? What we've been thinking about today, I think, gives us both confidence and it gives us comfort And both of those are important. John's account of the death of Jesus gives us confidence that the very foundation of the Christian faith is real, solid, genuine, truthful, valid, authentic. I mean, you pick the word that you like that basically means trustworthy. The fact that the events, often in quirky, offbeat and unwitting ways that you couldn't have bargained on, like the soldiers gambling for Jesus' garments or thrusting a spear into his side, that they were fulfillments of ancient scriptures should give you confidence that the death of Jesus is not a story spiralling out of control, but is the careful outworking of a plan hatched before creation. That gives me confidence in God himself. Gives me confidence in this plan. Furthermore, the fact that we have eyewitness accounts of the death of Jesus at the hands of expert Roman executioners, plus the additional details of his burial, 
with careful and detailed recording gives me confidence that Jesus actually died, that this most central event in our whole faith really occurred. Did you know that one way that people try to discredit the Christian faith is by discrediting the resurrection of Jesus? Let me say, if you want to have a go with the Christian faith, that is the right place to attack. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, maybe all you're left with is just an heroic guy who died for a cause that he believed in. But one of the ways that people who want to discredit Christianity try to discredit the resurrection is they try to discredit Jesus' death. And that is they say something like, Jesus didn't really die. He, he swooned. He fainted. Or some other such nonsense. So if he didn't actually die, then he didn't rise again. And you guys are believing in a whole lot of fairy tale. But we have details predicted from the ancient past and described with unclouded clarity. The executioner said he was already dead. They pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water gushed out. And later Pilate released Jesus' body to be buried. He really died. This absolutely pitiful detail is secure. So this gives me confidence in the facts. But lastly, as it concerns confidence, the fact that the sign written above Jesus' head is so universal, continues to give us confidence as we proclaim the message of his death. He is king not only for a particular race of people or class of people or even era of people. He is king for all and that remains a message that we proclaim to people in manly and beyond with great confidence in its truthfulness and its ongoing relevance. It gives us confidence in our proclamation. But alongside confidence, I, I think this account of Jesus' death also gives us comfort. Do you not read it and think we have a saviour worth following? A king worthy of our submission? Were you moved that even as Jesus was hanging there dying, he expressed concern for his mother and entrusted her care to John, the beloved disciple in verse 26, knowing that she needed a believing home to be a part of? For me, I've got to say, I'm very happy to follow somebody who is thinking of others, even in the darkest moments of his life. You know what Australians do in the darkest moments of our lives? Panic by toilet paper. So that our neighbours miss out. It's not really the darkest moments of our life, is it? It's not even really a joke. Is quite revealing though, isn't it? Quite revealing. I'm happy to follow somebody who thinks of others, even in the darkest moments. And even more than that, I, I am comforted by the fact that Jesus, our Saviour and King, has gone into and through death before me. It's not like he, he treaded almost up to that threshold and then pulled back, effectively saying, this is as far as I can go. You're going to have to do the rest by yourself on your own. I mean, he did it all, entering the very depths of the experience of death like we all will in the most brutal of fashions, but even more so than us because his descent to the dead involved not only the bearing of a roughly hewn wooden cross, but the bearing of a penalty and guilt of a world full of sin 
and the bearing of the Father's wrath poured out upon him, that he would do that before me, that he might do that for me, I find deeply soothing and of great comfort. How about you? Today we've, uh, I mean scarcely, barely, not even tried to touch upon the significance of the death of Jesus. That lies ahead. But we have considered the factual and historical occurrence of his death, predicted in the distant past, eyewitnessed in that present moment, to be proclaimed from that day onwards to all future generations. The cross of Christ brings both real confidence and deep, soothing comfort. God forbid we ever do away with the cross. Let's finish by praying together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the Apostle John and his record of the death of Jesus, just the bare record of it. We thank you that it brings us both confidence in you, in your plan, in this message that is to be proclaimed throughout the, the entire world, throughout all time. And furthermore, that it might comfort our very spirits that our Lord Jesus has gone before us and has gone there for us on our behalf. So we thank you for John, but we praise you for Jesus. I pray that you might um, be at work in our spirits so that we can live all of our lives for him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.